welcome to the ARC Audio Book Club. This episode is about Anne Rand's epic and pretty crappy novel, The Fountainhead. The book was published in 1943 and is one long ode to individualism and a bashing of collectivism. 700 pages long, it takes shape as a romantic novel about one creative genius, Howard Work. I'm going to quote Ben Lerner here and say that this was not a profound art experience, possibly because it wasn't art. And here I'd just like to say that I invited Lars Seyer, the Danish patron superior of Ayn Rand, to join the podcast so it wouldn't end up as a hater club, but Lars didn't write me back. Anyhow, Lars, this episode is for you. And we have Fanny Kabanski with the amazing composer name. Hi. Emilia Bang, first-timer. Hello. And make compel usual suspects. Hello. Someone give a quick recap of this book, please. So... The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand, a book from 1943 about the architect Howard Rourke and his attempt to live his life true to himself <laughs> and to achieve the work that he has always wanted to achieve despite the foolishness of society around him. This sounds like eat, pray, love. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's... Uh, and of course, with many uh, uh, obstacles in the form of different characters in his way. I think that's... A I think that serves as a good recap I think we should spoil it a little bit though mm. well please because I think the entire story hinges upon the fact that once he gets one of his great buildings built and he disapproves of modifications made along the process to make it more commercial he burns it down and then valiantly wins a court case mm. where he outlines a philosophical perspective not previously heard in court as evidence about arson And then people go, well, that seems fair enough. Seems like a small five-year-old from a divorce home, doesn't he? <laughs> would, be, would, be, would be a light way to describe his personality, <laughs> yes. So now that you started out with hard work, the enemy of conventional architecture, how much did you love him? Uh, I'm not a big fan of Howard work, and I'm not sure I'm a big fan of any of the characters I encountered. Uh, I think we can uh, talk about some of the others later, but Howard Rourke is just a, is just a person I wouldn't like to meet in my life, uh, with his attitude towards everything which goes around him. I think it's, I think it's very curious because I remember like when when you get very young men, to, especially to read this, who are thinking of themselves as creative, they can get kind of like. Um, entranced by the Rourke character because he's defiantly putting out the way that he wants things to be against all other odds. But what really undercuts this is the nature of architecture as a practice. Buildings are for people to go in and therefore have an inherently social aspect to them. If you write a very frustrating modernist novel that no one reads, fair enough. <laughs> But apropos what you just said, is that why... I, I read somewhere online that it's very common for teenagers in the States to go through a phase where they love this book mm. and they worship Ayn Rand. Is that because of Howard Rourke, who is this genius that no one understands and that is a typical teenage phase? Yeah, she's... And sometimes it never yeah. stops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's certainly, he's undoubtedly the hero, Unambiguously. I mean, the book is divided into the four sections, each one about a different male character in the book. Mm. The first one, Peter Keating, the weak, sniveling, people-pleaser. Could be decent if only he had some spine about him. For God's <laughs> sake, the mother's boy that keeps being depicted. 
Then there's Ellsworth Toohey, the uh, great manipulator of the system, socialist. Called trickster. And, and of course, a socialist in and of this course, regard. Because <laughs> he's evil. The most influential socialist <laughs> columnist of a major right-wing newspaper ever. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. Yes. And then there's the owner of said newspaper, um, Gail Waynard. Waynard, I think that's how Winard. I Winard. Winand. 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 With an N. Winand, yeah. Winand. Gail Winand, um, who is almost like Rourke and has sympathies with Rourke but has an important difference that he wants power over others the most <clears throat> de- despicable of all flaws are going to Rand I think even Keating is more understandable because at least his weakness is consistent with itself mm. much like Rourke's architecture consistent with the materials that she's using and uh, I think we should not forget another important character uh, who's uh, Dominique Franken? Franken, who's uh, Rourke's uh, opponent in many ways, but also a lover. And uh, the mm. relation they have between each other is one of the things which actually stands out in the pretty boring book as something which is fairly interesting, mm-hmm. uh, if only for for the for the twisted logic which is presented. And, and she seems to be kind of the female mirror of Howard Rourke, <laughs> but in the fact that she's. A, it, it, a female seems is the one who needs to I'm going to use this term man up in order to be with Howard work mm. because as a female she is it seems in this book kind of intuitively naturally less mm. than he is yes but still and she more, needs him but he doesn't actually need her yes strangely Freudian for someone who is all about objective reality and truth <laughs> her book is one of the most patriarchal this book is one of the most patriarchal books I've ever read despite coming from a woman and what annoys me is that now you say that their relationship is sort of interesting. I thought she was kind of interesting with her like self-destruction and everything. But every time someone uh, someone or something in that book feels interesting, it only lasts for about half a page mm-hmm. because then Ayn Rand will be sure to spell it out for us. If you're wondering about why they're doing something mm-hmm. or their motives or what is going to happen now, someone is going to have a long dialogue with someone else, mostly their mm-hmm. enemies, mm-hmm. where they just spell out their motives so the reader is ever in doubt of like oh I wonder what's going to happen now why is this, is this person acting like they're doing yeah I very much agree on a <clears throat> on a small perspective but I also had this feeling on a global perspective of the whole novel I think the last 150 mm. pages approximately mm. are just yeah. dedicated to clearly explaining what Ayn Rand means so mm. basically it's absolute anticlimax of any novel to just have everything prepared for you in such a easy and like obvious way and and this is what I really didn't enjoy about the, the, the whole I feel it had like I felt I did like the last uh, I did like the conclusion of where I thought it was interesting to read but I felt it was a little bit like reading like a James Bond movie where like the, the villain right at the end sits down you know James Bond and tells him what his big plan was and his motive and how he came about and how he managed to make everything succeed. And then, of course, the villain gets killed and uh, James Bond wins. But That's so, how I felt. Yeah, but did, did you like it, actually? Because this was the moment I was falling asleep the most, reading. I, I absolutely... To. Sorry, I, but I absolutely couldn't get through another... I just I was checking in advance. So there's two more pages of this explanation, and this was so so hard to like take. I would very much prefer this novel without all this. Like mm. I think it would make it so much more interesting. I think 
like you said, you you're not allowed to guess about a character's motive. You're you're told <laughs> at least after a while. But like you say, the logic of this book is very in and of in and of itself and quite twisted. So actually, I was quite happy to be told sometimes because I I thought mm. I have no idea what's going on. And then later on, they would tell me, and I was like, oh, thank you. I was I was wondering about that. But uh, I think maybe your your sort of reaction against this is also because you've studied philosophy. And so you've read a lot of these kinds of texts and you know what they're about and you probably disagree with a lot of the stuff that's said in these. And I, for one, I haven't read a lot of philosophy, so mm. this kind of explicitation wasn't that boring to me, I think, or that familiar to me. Mm. Maybe that's why I managed to survive I, towards the end. To me, the boredom came not from the system being explained to me, which I didn't know either, Like, but... The point, like from the perspective of a construction of a novel, this seemed very uh, unnecessary. Like I, I was trying to imagine other novels about geniuses, or like think about them, which I read, and I was thinking about uh, Doctor Faustus. Like till the very end, you don't really get to understand that the protagonist, like there is always something mm. which is not said. Whereas Ayn Rand is all about explaining mm. everything. I think this like ties into her. Her perspective of what reality is, like <coughs> she is of the opinion, like her, the philosophy is called objectivism. So it's about that there being an objective reality, and that you can access it, and that you can know what your desire is in relation to that 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 actual reality. So it's almost like the book, in some way, reflects that by saying, "This is what the case is. There is no ambiguity here." This is the moral certainty. Their arguments are fallacious because they do not accept the moral um, certainty that with which we can know the world. So in that way, I think it's a very consistent project and should be respected for that. Yeah, and I mean, I like the project of doing philosophy as fiction. Mm -hmm. It's just the shame that it's such a bad book. <laughs> and she's like, she's too didactive. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but rewind to where you finally said that you're really bored. Were you really bored reading this book? Because I thought it was amazing. I read through it mm. in not a lot of time and I was so amused and so entertained and I swallowed it whole and afterwards I was like a snake who just ate a deer. I, I didn't eat anything for a month. It totally ruined my month of June this year because I couldn't read anything because, yeah, I had just binged on this Mexican soap and there was nothing to do now. Yeah, I should probably qualify. So basically the book reading experience came in phases. The first approximately 200 pages, the first chapter, it was extremely boring and I was on the verge of giving up. If not for this very meeting we're holding now, I probably would. Uh, and then from the second chapter on, uh, like, mm. as you say, it turned into some sort of a soap opera or like a TV mm. series kind of plot, which was actually really involving for a while. But towards the end, like this uh, excitement kind of faded down and it became, it just became this pure uh, agenda for her to explicitly announce her ideas which I like you said this sort of project should be respected as and if, if you take this perspective that it should be respected as what it was and what it was meant to be then maybe yes <laughs> but apart from like this consideration like I would not give her credit for that uh, I, I wouldn't say to respect it external to its own terms <laughs> I think it's internal consistency can be respected as good internal consistency yeah I think if you're looking for, for positive sides of the book then definitely you have a point here but I agree <laughs> yeah, there were moments where the book reads 
uh, swiftly because mm. there are moments which are pretty uh, mm. uh, interesting. Uh, and, and not even interesting, but just fun. I mean, we have our favorite sleazebag, Peter Keating, right, who is the collectivist who uh, gets inspired by previous ideas <laughs> of architecture. Is he a collectivist, though, or is he an opportunist? He's an opportunist. Oh, yeah, he's probably an opportunist. Yeah. But, like, his biggest vice is that he is inspired by for, he's an architect and his, mm. he gets inspired becomes inspired by like previous buildings mm. and in this book there are the good ones and the bad ones mm. and the bad ones uh, like tradition and renaissance buildings and mm. the, the good ones like uh, modernist buildings um, that doesn't have uh, pillars in front for example <laughs> and my favorite part or its is pillars are entirely conducive to the structural design mm-hmm. not superfluous yeah but then my favorite passage in this book is when he she Ayn Rand is like underlining how much of a steez bag he is because he sells his wife in order to get a commission on a building and then just to like highlight mm. how pathetic he is he goes home to his mm. mother and lies in fetus position for three days on his bed without like stepping out of the bed It's like it tells you that Hitler was mean to a dog. Yeah. A puppy. Mm. Mm. In a way, I actually thought this, the, uh, so his wife is uh, this uh, Dominique Franken, who is uh, Howard Works' arch enemy and lover and also uh, ally in an odd constellation. Frenemy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and she, uh, for strange reasons, which you can probably explain, ends up marrying Peter Keating. And, um, And actually, I felt that his selling of her to get this commission mm-hmm. was very, was actually, it's wrong to say a strong character's trait, but uh, it doesn't look very good. And he's all about looking good. Mm-hmm. So mm. that's, I thought it was actually quite an interesting choice. Um, but that's probably because he knew all the time that he never really owned But he wants to look good as an architect, not necessarily as a husband, I think, or like as a person. But it seems as if in this book it kind of goes together, this whole society that they're in is a society of publicity and where people know each other and know each other's wives and husbands and what's going on and Mm -hmm. in the drawing rooms behind closed doors. But speaking of like traditionalists versus modernists and everything in the book, did you also find everything to be totally binary, like black or white? Yes, I, <laughs> I definitely did. And this is actually a word which popped into my mind while reading it. And so the fact that you're using it now is just confirming mm-hmm. uh, the fact that this is not a book which deals with uh, nuances. It's, it's, there is no space for, uh, for gray areas. It's either good or it's bad. Which, which is interesting because, like, when the, the section of the book that you're saying, that you, I think both of you were saying, uh, all of us are saying was most interesting was the, this the section in the middle where you have the dynamic between Dominique and Rourke and the layers upon layers of plot development of a House of Cards script that was thrown out because it was realized to be plagiarized from a, the Fountainhead. Um, was, That's how it felt. <laughs> Is is this this this, uh, this conflict between these two people who are so similar the the Rourke and and and, and um, uh, Franken Dominique Franken, the daughter of the famous architect firm Franken and Keating as it becomes later, because while they both cons- they both have a, a similar worldview a similar desire to see the world in a certain way, but she but there's a, the distinction between them is that he is not concerned whether or not whether or not it's possible. He just knows it to be possible and he has to do it. And she is not convinced it's possible and so has to illustrate that 
it isn't possible by destroying Rourke, by breaking him down, by showing he can't work. And that's her motivation, is that her worldview is dependent upon the fact that the ideal is never reachable. Which makes her strangely like the Joker in The Dark Knight. She but, was my favorite character. Yeah, yeah, me too, actually. I was wondering if we should disentangle all these characters, like, relations to each other. Then we would have to make this episode in, like, five chapters. Yes, I was thinking about it. Really? So Peter, so Peter <laughs> yeah, and Howard. <laughs> yeah. So Peter and Howard were at architecture school together. Peter Keating, Howard Rourke. Um, Rourke gets thrown out. Uh, Keating gets a job at the um, Frank, Franklin and Haya? Haya? Yeah. 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 Um, architecture firm. Uh, Rourke goes off to train with some modernists for a while. Frank, <laughs> Frank, Frank realizes that Peter will do whatever he says. Eventually, introduces him to his daughter. Elsa the two writes about both of them. Her cool asexual daughter does too. Like yes, asexual until until one night. Oh. Until one particular night. <laughs> one particular night when a a, uh, a strange man rapes her, and she thinks that was great. Because that's fine. Well, thanks, Ayn. Yeah, great. I was wondering, reading it, if there is an explanation for, like, is there a reason in her philosophy to include the, the, the rape subject in the book? or Macon has a good exegesis of it. If there is any idea. Do I have a good exegesis around the table? Yes, you do. Of how women... No, that particular woman, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> could only enjoy it if she thought that... No, wait, she didn't enjoy it, but then she figured out that he, she was, he was perfect. It was like Anselm Scott proof, right? Yes. The ontological... Uh... Okay, yes, because he's perfect, <laughs> yeah. and perfect beings don't commit rape, yeah. it wasn't rape, mm. but it wouldn't matter if it was because he's perfect yes, kind of thing. exactly. So it wasn't rape. But it was, but it wasn't. But it was, but, but it was good. Yeah, it's fucked up. I remember, I remember, I, remember I, when I read this, I was, I was sitting on a train, and I just... Finished that section and went, yeah, that's, um, that book, this book didn't call for that. <laughs> and yet here we are, hours to go. I was also a bit surprised. <laughs> But I think it's a rare combination. Like, it's rarely that a book can be both twisted and at the same time boring. Usually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tyler. <laughs> yeah, like usually those two don't go well together, but somehow Rand manages to... Yeah. to, to, to mm. But to only at that specific mm. point. And what's interesting to me is yeah. that she's very clear, careful in the introduction to say this is a piece of romanticism, and what you're describing here is, I think, a modernist masterpiece. Mm. And that's what she wants it to be, isn't it? Well, if it's just both twisted and boring, that is quite the experimental fiction we're talking about here. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be that <laughs> But it's twisted and then boring because each character has to prove one of her philosophical points. Yeah, so yeah. they're just put into the world not as literary characters so much as a different voices that can voice yeah. opposition mm. and then, but then in the end prove mm. her point. So yeah. then that, that, that's probably yeah. where it gets really boring because in yeah. that way they become very predictable. Yeah. They're, like, they're like philosophy proofs to be run through and yeah. then shown to be inadequate and then move on to the next one. And thus the last, last section, Howard Rourke yeah. fixes it all by spelling out all the things that were very obvious throughout. Uh, like <laughs> <laughs> but if you were in doubt, there is a big monologue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the one I almost fell asleep going through. But yeah, I, I think it was my idea as well that basically the source of this book is not so much reality as it is and people as they are or can be, but rather set of very uh, clearly articulated ideas she has about world and how it should be being objectivism. 
and then the book is just an excuse to preach it somehow. Uh, and I think this reversion of, of the order of, of some logic of how you construct a novel was what in the end I kind of identified for myself as the source of me not liking the book. Because uh, obviously there is novels which try to get a point across. Mm. Somehow the good novels of this sort, and I have in mind classics like uh, probably Camille Stranger or Dostoevsky, you still have a feeling that they are rooted in reality and what's, what's mm. said is reflected through the characters rather than characters are just used to reflect something which, which you conceived in advance. It's that feeling when you are really reading a book and you're going... And you, it's also a thing you try when you try to write anything and you write a sentence down and you realize the inadequacy of the sentence you've written. And then you realize that to express the idea properly, you're going to have to caveat this with about 50 footnotes to try and flatten out what you meant. And you think that Ayn Rand did not have that problem. She, like she knew which sentence had to follow which sentence all the way through to get to a point and that no realizations would come along the way because the point was always super overriding reflection <laughs> through it. I get, maybe, yeah, maybe we should say that the reflection had already taken place and we would disagree um, but I'm not going to argue with her. She is long dead. <laughs> but I think maybe that's why the what I found interesting in the book are the characters, uh, at least shortly, because when they're introduced in a kind of linear fashion, mm. at first you hear of Peter Keating and Howard Ward mm. and you get to know them and then you hear of, of Dominique and and you, but all of these characters, the the two other big characters, which is Ellsworth Tuhi, who's the like, scheming socialist. Oh, he's my other and, favorite. And then uh, Gail Wynand. Yes. Yep. You hear you hear about them for so long, but you're not introduced to them, and mm. then you're introduced to Ellsworth mm. Tuhi, and that becomes mm. more and more complex mm. because you thought of him in one way yeah. while people were talking yeah, of him, yeah. but then you meet him yeah. and he's completely different. Yeah. And the same with Gail Wynand. So I thought, yeah. and I especially liked when he very late in yeah. the book entered the scene that's when the book became most interesting to me I said the, the, the technical delivery of this yeah. is actually it's yeah. Yeah. very well crafted in yeah. that way it's like it's it's well written is too far because I want to, I want to, I want to read an excerpt but the um, the craft like the pacing of it is excellent I don't think there's anything like that 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 is, I think, what makes made me finish the book. I think it's also... Mm. Yeah, it's actually yeah. well composed, if yeah. nothing else. But I'd like to read the introduction of Gail Wainard because oh, it makes me laugh. <laughs> uh, he's been introduced throughout as the as this, this mystical uh, media magnate um, throughout. Uh, but here, he, the beginning of uh, section three, Gail Wainand, chapter one. <laughs> Gail Wainand raised a gun to his temple. He felt the pressure of a metal ring against his skin yes. and nothing else. He might have been holding a lead pipe or a piece of jewellery. It was just a small circle without significance. I'm going to die, he said aloud and yawned. <laughs> he felt no relief, no despair, no fear. The moment of his end would not grant him even the dignity of seriousness. It was an anonymous moment. A few minutes ago, he had held a toothbrush in that hand. Now he held a gun with the same casual indifference. And I think we can understand that he is dealing with a, um, an emotional crisis. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> so yes, I, like his introduction is quite nice. Like, mm. like when you read it through, you're like, you go, oh, that's... But from that introduction, does he ever return to the fact that he wanted to die at one point, or does it just keep getting better well, from there? What gives him meaning 
That is true. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, to me, the, the, the style of the book, if we should be reading out loud, is just completely encapsulated in the first three sentences yes. of the book. Which if Where I he's read aloud, uh, owning the nature. It is, it is uh, in the section of, I guess the first section is Peter Keating. Peter Keating. Yeah. Part one, chapter one, starts like this. Howard Rourke laughed. He stood naked at the edge of a cliff. The lake lay far below him. A frozen explosion of granite burst in flight to the sky over motionless water. The water seemed immovable, the stone flowing. The stone had the stillness of one brief moment in battle, when thrust meets thrust, <laughs> and the currents are held in a pause more dynamic than motion. The stone glowed, wet with sun rays. Yeah. Beautiful. And it goes further to say something like, it, it was just waiting for him yes, to Yes, I will shape this granite. Uh, yes, here it is. These rocks, he thought, are here for me, waiting for the drill, the dynamite and my voice, waiting to be split, ripped, pounded, reborn, waiting for the shape my hands will give them. So we have the god of Ayn Rand. There he is, yeah. in human form. So, no. <laughs> it's just, yeah. I, I, it's difficult to know anything of the biography of Ayn Rand and read the whole and not read the Dominic Franken character as a little bit of fan fiction for herself like, like, like she write, this is how she writes herself into the novel that's what I like to call my diary fan fiction yeah. <laughs> said, in, this, fan in this context that Dominic Franken is of course the most beautiful woman in the world in this book yes so I don't so want to beautiful you can see through her actually almost that's that is the illusion it gives the viewer it says at one point because she's so ethereal. <laughs> That's. <laughs> there are many things that Iron Man was, but ethereal was one. No, <laughs> not one of them. <laughs> Sorry. And uh, why is why is why is she self biographical, Dominique? Well, it's not so much self biographical, but it's more that when you understand, like within the context of how she envisioned herself within the world, mm. as someone fighting this this good fight, which seemed unwinnable to her, mm-hmm. and then she was imagining. Like the, uh, the 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 progression that she would make, like like she she would not consider herself to be wholly the hero, but she was striving towards it, and she would always be looking for it. And it was um, although like you know she was always trying to be rational, like when she was <coughs> breaking up with one of her uh, former students who she'd been having an affair with. Um, well, he was leaving her for a younger woman, and uh, and she said that he wasn't being rational. So I mean, she was trying to keep to her ideals the whole way through. So I know, I, I, let's not let's not go further into Ayn Rand's <laughs> life. <laughs> no, let's invent a new scale for humans in literature. The, I present you the Rourke Keating scale. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. But what is fun about the book, and it's actually not fun; it's just super cruel, is how she fits <laughs> the victim oppressor mm-hmm. dynamics. Um, mm-hmm. Here, the real victims of the world are the creative intelligent people because mm. they are being leached upon by the poor people mm. and the uncreative people mm. the phonies in the words of second handers second handers I think mm. the, yes in the, in the protagonist of Catcher in the Rye who was a 12 year old boy or something yeah I think feeding upon yeah I think in an introduction she basically is very clear as to what 
is her image of uh, of, of collective she's against and society is against and the only uh, movements she lists is communism, fascism and Nazism which is very hmm. very silly attitude to have if, you, <laughs> if this is the only image you have of if you aspire to be somebody well well educated or whatever like intelligentsia well, nah, 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 <laughs> you should be able to conceive and see through this yeah. and understand that there is way more to mm. just collective ways of living that those basically yeah. uh, exceptions yeah. to, 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 to what collective life is. There is a distinction between an FDR, Democrat, New Deal guy policy of let's build a dam compared to let's have build a concentration camp. There is, there is a distinction there which she has missed. But yeah. I think that it, remi- it reminds me a little bit of what I heard about the people who, uh, the, uh, the, the economists who champion neoliberalism in its time, mm-hmm. who were also refugees from Austria. Mm. And they also went from one, they saw what they saw yeah. and then went to the complete opposite conclusion that individualism yeah. was the utmost and any yeah. form of collectivism yeah. would lead into fascism. Yeah. Um, and of course, I guess they are shaped in the, like Ayn Rand, perhaps also by yeah. that time. Yeah. And so it, um, it becomes a kind of <laughs> something that looks odd today because we have our welfare state of today, mm-hmm. but that at the time perhaps was not so inconceivable. Yeah. And of course, the welfare state today is itself only a relic of how does a capitalist economy survive the Cold War? (laughs) So that's going to... But I have to say, I also became... So I'd heard of Ayn Rand before I read this book, and I knew what she stood for. Mm. Uh, But I was very positively surprised, perhaps because I've heard so much about her, by her philosophy, because I suddenly understood her idea of the individual through her idea of the mass. Mm. To me, of course, collectivism, or not of course, but to me, collectivism seems like a nice, this seems like a wonderful ideal that I would Mm. like to champion. Um, So I have never understood someone who's been against it, but reading her version of the collective and of the mass, which is Peter Keating, Mm. who just copies everyone else and only cares about his prestige. Mm. um, Mm. I suddenly understood why, if that's how she views the mass, I mean, then of course you don't want to be the mass yeah. it's just a very one-sided way of viewing but how to be a second-hander it's, a, it's, an unco- yeah. it's an uncomplicated way of viewing the mass because <laughs> the weird thing about that is that Peter Keating's whole approach of worrying about his status within the mass is actually implicitly individualistic because he ha- it's about how he as a distinct unit looks to the rest so it's still that distinction between self and other mm. which is which is you know, and the only thing is that in her philosophy, you just deny the validity of the existence of the other. So they're both working on the same assumption of like that, that there is a um, this uh, this this impermeable barrier between an indivisible, which is the root word of individual, and 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 everybody else. Which is you know this is actually the problem with the word individual. We're talking more, I think, about subjects and subjectivity than we are. If we want to go into that, but that but but. <laughs> but when you say individual, you're talking about something which is at its core unbreakable and unbreakably separate. That's her vision of collectivism. It's a bunch of individuals pretending mm. that they're not that, but they are that. Mm. And so you can't break that down. So it's Yeah, that will work for all the characters in the book. Then. Yeah. Also, Ellsworth too is... Yeah, yeah. Uh, but if I remember correctly, this is... This, this, at some point, it appears this whole tactics of his is just mm. the means of him to have a, a society to control. So ultimately, it's his own personal interest he's pursuing. Yeah. And mm. 
destroying Rourke makes it easier for him to control the society, which wouldn't have an example of what what another possibility of, of being would be. But coming back to the, I think, motivation which she has in uh, introducing this uh, distinction between individual versus society or versus collectivity, like, I, I had very hard time understanding like what motivates her to be like what what is what is the motor of her thinking and why does she uh, presents it the way she does and then after reading the book I picked into <coughs> introduction and then I came across a very telling sentence uh, and she describes how her husband was uh, supporting her in the process and at some point she says he convinced me of why one cannot give up the world to those one despises. And this word to despise, like, I think it's, it's, it's very telling. Mm. Like she basically, there's a very, a, a lot of negative yeah. sense from her side, which motivates her whole philosophy in, in, in a way. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually reading this, I was very disappointed. I was hoping there is something more noble mm. behind what she, what she presents. But mm. I understood she just basically just doesn't like the world she lives in. So it's a, yeah, she's not, it's not an ideology, <coughs> ideology as much as it's a personal. Well, I mean, it's still an ideology, but it's an ideology, mm. it's, a, it's a negative ideology. It's, it's mm. defined by um, a, dis, a, a revulsion yeah, against yeah. the status quo rather than a positive project. Mm. Yeah, uh, that's how I read it. And that's how, that, that, that's what explains to me how is it possible to come up with such a twisted way of, of looking at things because it has to be motivated by something very extreme I guess mm. but I felt that that also that also speaks a bit to her to her view on selflessness versus selfishness which I found really interesting or at least I hadn't thought of the way she thought of before in that she sees Peter Keating who everyone else sees as selfish because he wants power for himself as the most selfless person because he's not true to his self mm. and Howard Rourke as the most um selfish person in the best sense because he is true to the self so she reverses those two she in the book the characters say that or Howard Rourke says that those terms have through history been perverted and the selfless uh, is actually not the true ideal but the selfish mm. and I, th I just thought that reversal was quite at least yeah. at least yeah. uh, interesting yeah, would no, be a good word and I also think that it's quite interesting that Howard Rourke has found time between sitting when, probably when he was sitting in his Businessless architecture office thought, I'm going to do some uh, etymological research <laughs> and see how these words have been perverted over time. Because no one's asking me to draw some lines. Yeah. Yeah, especially yeah, because I can't imagine him ever reading uh, a philosophical work by anyone because that would taint his uh, pure thought and reason and imagination. But his idea of the selfless and the selfish is yeah. also his pure thought and imagination. Mm. Like it, it, yeah. He speaks of it as yeah. if it comes from the very depths of himself. Yeah, I think it's just this, this kind of fallacy that the, that the human subject is this is, a, is, is an, um, an eternal being and it has never been changed and that the idea that a subject itself is... You know, it's, it's a modern invention. Mm. It's within the last 400 but, years. It's not... But she's also pleading for ignorance, isn't she? Because yeah. you can't get expired. You can't build work on top of anyone else's mm. previous work. And, mm. like, I am doubting if you can even read a book. <coughs> yeah. Well, you can read but, her. Yeah, I'm sure you can read hers. Um, so. Yeah. But besides <laughs> yeah. her... It's true. It seems as if... I mean, her philosophy only works... If you believe that society is in some way structureless, mm. that there are no structures to make someone rise and someone else yeah. fail. And 
that's not very modern today, at least. No, but what's also interesting, again, and the flaw of choosing architecture as the subject of this, the, the strength of choosing architecture, I would say, is that you get to say, look at this huge accomplishment that this person has dreamed up. But the flaw of it is going that that requires a lot of money from somebody. Yes. And to get money within this system where there's people who have different demands and different urges and different different projects and, and, and influences means you will have to compromise. So basically everyone who likes Rourke goes, I was like Rourke once, but then I had to compromise my dreams. <laughs> now I want one of his buildings and now I can pay for it because I compromised along the way. <laughs> but Rourke doesn't have to compromise because all he does is make some sketches and tell people what building materials to use. Yeah, but we need the other people in order yeah, to yeah, have Rourke yeah, because you exactly. starve to death. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And that's the thing is like it's... Everyone Rourke can work for has let Ayn Rand down. Mm. <laughs> it's basically like I was thinking... I was wondering while I was reading this, does she want everyone in society to be Howard Rourke? They could be. Then it, it couldn't. It, society wouldn't work. Not according, not according to the introduction. She, also, then, she recognizes that it can't be. So yes, yeah. that's what I was going to say. Then I read that she said yeah. only a few in every yeah. generation will have this gift. <laughs> but so like, like if she understands that it's impossible to just have Howard Rourke all the way down, like wouldn't then she think the second best would to have just other people turn into Dominics who sort of... Okay, women. Yes, people who recognize the, the quality of the genius or the, the person who like stands out mm. and uh, by proxy understand their misery, like even though they cannot aspire. Yeah, to. I think that must be the second best thing. That uh, and I think like for her, the society constructed along those lines like would be what she would be aiming at, but which would still be kind of a terrible society <laughs> like in, in many ways. Yeah. But it's uh, to me, it's all like to her whole view of the world is, uh, is based on a very... Uh, a simply wrong premise that it's possible to just be uh, self-sufficient in a world which is inherently uh, which 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 you are in with other people and like there is no way around it whatever she wants to tell us like we will always be in the world with others like they are a part of our world yeah. uh, and we can be just uh, we can say oh I don't like it. I, I just don't like it I don't like it but and here, can, can we just slip in uh a break where Macon describes the cover of my copy. The cover of um, Shivana's copy of The Fountainhead is from, I believe... I'm guessing 80s. Yes. You would think 80s, but I'm thinking... Might also be 70s. Coked up 80s. No, it's actually... This, this, this is 1979. Oh, oh, oh. just oh. on the cusp. 79, and it's got... Um, it's uh, in a, 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 a serif font the title of Fountainhead and they decided to hyphenate Fountainhead because it was too long a word to fit <laughs> across this and um, <laughs> so then the last line of head is, is written in lower case and it doesn't say bestseller but it does say five million copies sold in red in red and the Fountainhead is written in yellow and iron random white and below this is a picture of what I can assume is a woman who was in Dallas in a semi-painted style, <laughs> leaning back upon an architecture desk. She does not fit any of the description of the kind of mysteriously ephemeral um, uh, Dominique Franken, and, and she's laying on an architecture desk, which has been put together with the least care and attention for what an architecture desk would require, say, measurement tools. It's just a desk with some papers on that she's kind of smudging and then there's some pens next to it one of which may be a biro I'd like to pass that around and you can inspect the pens because they are now that we're talking about the cover may I ask a stupid question why is it called the fountainhead do they ever talk about 
a fountainhead. Did I miss that? I have wondered about this, and it was one of my questions because <laughs> I just don't know why it's called the fountainhead. Isn't there like a reference to it somewhere in the book, or is that? Is there I thought it, I thought towards the end it will be there, but. But isn't fountainhead a, a word to describe the source of ideas, or oh, maybe yeah? I think it apart from what we can assume is a head of a fountain as an architectural. Uh, is she outline. being implicit for once? <laughs> <laughs> doesn't explain. Is yeah. she is she being yeah. mysterious? Far, far more so than her follow up novel, Atlas Shrugged, which is just okay. I get I get it because he was carrying the world on his shoulders, and when he shrugs, it falls apart. Yeah. I always thought that was the most beautiful title, though. Atlas Shrugged. Until you hear the premise. Then. Yes. No, <laughs> the most beautiful title I ever heard was Not on Fire but Burning. <laughs> oh, that is a beautiful title. What's that? I haven't read it. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, to answer your question, the yes. uh, New Oxford American Dictionary ah. uh, uh, describes Fountainhead as an original source of something. And example it gives is, this president was the fountainhead of patronage. There we go. I obviously did not do my research properly. Me neither. <laughs> That's way more embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I think that then the explanation would be pretty straightforward. Yeah. It's Howard Rourke is just the fountain. Just the fountain. Mm. As opposed to all of us. Like, we're not. <laughs> with, a, with, a, with a fountain receptacles. Yeah, yeah. Just receiving everything he does. I think it's interesting. I think it's, it's worth mentioning the. I felt the glaring disjunct within this was that she was describing a modernist architect by all, like, even though he would not be on that bandwagon, he would probably disagree with all the modernists, but. Okay, it's, it's about modern materials and how what they can do. And she writes in this quasi-romantic style, this pulpy romantic style, mm-hmm. and how she explains this in the introduction as being the necessity of how storytelling is, you know, it speaks to this whole notion of its inherent nature of a human being, which apparently actually can't cope with Howard Rourke's ideas and can only cope with them being communicated in this way. So it undermines her entire point as she's doing it. And I... Like it's just this weird But maybe also highlights it or proves it that we wouldn't be able to understand this if she had written it in a moderni- well, modernistic way. Mm. Uh, she needs to, because we are all stupid and there's only one how it works for each generation. Mm. And so five million copies have to be sold. So. Exactly. <laughs> there are more of us than there is of him. So she needs to write this in a romantic style for all the leeches out there. Yeah. yeah. All the people just get it now. Mm-hmm. Get it? Know your place. Yes. I think a premise is to describe the world as it ought to be rather than as it is. Mm. Like that's where she's starting from mm. and that's why she has a tendency to, to, to go towards this way. Yeah. Uh, but then that's also but that like like futurists tried that as well. Like there, there are modernist attempts to try and describe the world as it ought to be. Mm. It's just that I yeah, I mean I think she was also having an eye to her bank account. I also just felt it was a kind of, I mean, she might have a certain idea, but that doesn't need, the form doesn't need to follow. I felt she was kind of writing her own love story to Howard Rourke. Mm. And that, and that it was her, not a personal preference, but I couldn't imagine it being, this book being written in any other style. It's so graphic and it's so full of all these, mm. like you say, pulpy images. I was just kind of envisioning Ayn Rand sitting there, kind of like in 10 Things I Hate About You. <laughs> you, you know the scene where she's writing where she's writing the uh, the erotic short story Mm-mm. with Heath, Heath, Le- Le- Heath Ledger? No, you don't know the scene. I, I, I think That's I, how I was imagining Ayn Rand, where she's like, he took out his broad wrist. He 
We don't know the scene. This is a no. classic, classic. Because the book is not very objective, is it? No. Isn't she blinded by love? Yes. Yeah, yeah she's completely. She, she's far, so, far too in love with Howard Walk to uh, to, mm. to realize that he's a sociopath. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Sherlock. No. <laughs> and when I was reading it, so one thing that I was thinking about was that there is absolutely no point in this book where two characters that should like each other collaborate except maybe of course Dominique in some odd way with Howard Rourke but it's it's as if like co collaboration is just unimaginable to her I mean when I read about when I was introduced to Dominique I thought here's a match for Howard Rourke and then they meet and then he rapes her because why not and then <laughs> and then and then they but then of course they fall in love in an odd way mm. and at at one point in the novel about the middle or the two-thirds of the way four people are in a room together who like each other and it was very odd and there was mm. chumminess and it was the first time in the book that four people had been in a room and, and liked each other and I thought this is a terrible world <laughs> you know people who should get together just compete with each other and I'm gonna proceed to the visual question mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Would you recommend this book? Should I start? Yes. I would say yes. Mm -hmm. I would recommend this book. I had a great time reading this book. I was actually quite inspired by some of the things she wrote. Um, oh, hopefully not too much. Um, no, but I think, I mean, I heard someone say, and this is an obvious thing, that you learn from reading things you disagree with. Mm -hmm. And I tend to read things that I agree with. So I think this was a very useful reading for me to kind of, uh, how do you say um, expand your horizon. Yeah, yeah, and 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 get perspective on some of my own ideas, and then also because I have personally in this time been thinking a lot about the kind of work that I want to do, mm -hmm. and this is all about work. I mean, her she has a crazy work ethic. Like this is all about Howard Works work and how much it means to him and how it is mm -hmm. the expression of his true self. And so I found that part. You, I mean, leaving out all the stuff that the individual is the only true entity. <clears throat> I found I found some of the, her reflections on the nature of work mm -hmm. quite inspiring, actually. Okay. So um, and then I just loved all the weird metaphors and pulpy uh, yeah. images and uh, and and fun New York characters. I'm really glad that it wasn't bad then because I was afraid that I had inflicted too much pain. Because <laughs> I mean I loved it, but I'm I and I've told people you should read it. But only because people say they hate Ayn Rand, and I get that. Mm. But read the book and like and hate her appropriately. Yeah, I I, I read the book um, in response to my friend saying, "Well, if you want to talk about Ayn Rand, you will have to read Ayn Rand." Mm. And I'm glad that I did. I think I've learned a lot more about a particular way of thinking that is pervasive within our culture. But and it's also, for the most part, entertainingly written. It doesn't, you know, it's not like it's. Uh, It's not making you work hard to get through the opponent's point of view. And that is... Thank, thank you, Ayn. <laughs> this I, I, turning it's into fun. like a Thanksgiving dinner. I uh, would just like to no, add no. that I learned nothing from this book, but yes, I really like, liked it. And I'm not grateful that I read it, but I had no, fun. No, it's not like I learned about like the world. I learned about perspectives. <laughs> uh, I don't learn anything about reality. So I would not recommend this book. <laughs> and actually today I had this book uh, displayed on my table while I was unpacking during my classes and somebody asked me, like, oh, what is it? I was like, oh, it's Iron Run Fountainhead. And I was like, what is it? I described it briefly and then they asked me, so would you recommend it? And then I said like, no. Like if you have a privilege of 
having enough time to go through 700 page long novel like choose something different like <laughs> if you really yeah. want to read about genius like I would highly recommend you go to Thomas mm. Mann as or the Bible like, mm. or whatever like you name it but like I don't think I learned like I, I think everything which is in this book like if you really want to know Ayn Rand like there is tons of materials online because she has a hordes of dedicated followers who make all sorts of informative mm. websites and to know her the stance on the world and objectivism is enough and to appreciate her as a reader like she didn't give me enough to, mm. to, to say yeah as, as just as a book I would recommend it I definitely uh, I definitely wouldn't uh, so it's not a Thanksgiving. <laughs> not a I'm, full I'm one, really at least. <laughs> it was like the ending scene of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I <laughs> felt that I needed to defend it slightly. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you just have to like, it's just more like Gary Johnson in an interview while running for president of the United States mm. lists this as his favorite book. Yeah, that's problematic. No. Like and I, I think there's, you ha- like, you, sometimes you have to read Mein Kampf to know what the fuck was going on. <laughs> I think I think this, it's problematic because of this was one of the last sentences of the book where it says in 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 a tone of despair the age of the skyscraper is gone the age this is the age of the housing project which is always a prelude to the age of the cave. Thank you for having listened. Next episode we'll celebrate our one year anniversary by going back to where we started with Ben Lerner, although this time we'll talk about the maybe sequel to Leaving the Atocha Station, his newest novel, 1004.